Let us pray together. Dear God, we thank you so very much for the way that we feel you moving in this time of worship this morning. We need your presence. We are thirsty for it. And we thank you that you, through Christ, have provided us an image of a well flowing from an eternal source to quench our deepest thirst and to empower us to live in love in the way of Jesus. So we are bold to ask for even more of your Holy Spirit now as we open your scriptures together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Five years ago, just before our move here to Lancaster, I took a bike ride in Chicago that God used to really mess me up and turn my world a little upside down. By then, we had been living in Chicago for 13 years, a sprawling metropolis of 10 million people, a little different than the 60,000 we have here in Lancaster City. And living out there in the burbs, Danette and I drove everywhere, everywhere along its huge expressways, never really noticing the neighborhoods that we were flying by. But then a dear teacher friend invited me to be a chaperone one spring day for his 40-mile ride from the south of Chicago all the way to the north with a group of high school kids. And we crossed the whole city that day, 40 miles, from the once red-lined neighborhoods on the south side, black and Hispanic, all the way to the north side, mostly white. Now, what you have to know is that I had never had to go through Chicago's poorer neighborhoods, especially block by block by block, mile by mile by mile. And that day, when I finally had to, I was stunned by the scale of racial segregation and and economic inequality that I saw as we rolled from south to north. What surprised me most was the feeling of slowly leaving a black and white movie. You know, like Wizard of Oz? Of poverty, decaying housing, and neglected schools on the south side, and then moving into a technicolor movie. I hope you like this, Dirk. Of well-tended yards, beauty, trees, wonderful schools, and million-dollar homes. What was I going to do with it? 
I was on the cusp of leaving that city, coming here to Lancaster. All I could do was vow that it wouldn't take me 13 more years to explore and understand the new city that I was about to live in. Our gospel reading today begins with a very crucial detail that is very easy to miss. Verse 4, Jesus has to go through Samaria. Has to go through Samaria. Why is that? I mean, is it geographical convenience, taking the shortest route from Jerusalem straight up to Galilee? No. Because for Jews like Jesus, Samaria is dangerous, hostile territory. You see, to Jews, Samaritans are a mixed race of half-breeds, Jewish-Gentile heretics who worship God on the wrong mountain. And Samaritans return the hatred by stoning and even massacring Jewish pilgrims who dare to pass through their land. And so when traveling from Jerusalem to Galilee, Jews usually make a four-day detour to get there. It's like if you were going from Lancaster City to Allentown, and you went by way of Coatesville. So I hope it's becoming clear that Jesus having to do this has nothing to do with geographical convenience and everything to do with divine necessity. He is deliberately placing his body in a forbidden space that most everyone else, if you're a Jew, is happy to avoid. But not Jesus. Later in Ephesians 2.14, we will read that through Jesus, all the dividing walls of hostility between Jews and Gentiles have come falling and tumbling down. And today at Jacob's Well in Samaria, we see this beginning to happen. So our story begins at noon with Jesus, tired and thirsty, sitting by that deserted well in Samaria. And the original Greek here actually says that he's not sitting by the well, but he's sitting on the well. Because in the Middle East, much like this one, there's a stone capstone over the well. And... Middle Eastern wells also, by the way, don't usually come with a rope or a bucket. And so by plopping himself down on that well, Jesus is vulnerably opening himself up for the very next Samaritan who will come his way, who is the woman that we meet today. Now, we can hardly exaggerate, you just can't exaggerate the scandal of the conversation that now unfolds between Jesus and this woman. Jesus doesn't just ask a hated Samaritan 
for water, but a woman. Jewish rabbis aren't even supposed to talk to their own wives in public, much less a woman unknown at a deserted well. And this woman, as we soon learn, is a triple outsider. She's a Samaritan, she's a woman, and she's also someone who has lived a very tragic life. Now, over the centuries, she's often been regarded as a harlot, as promiscuous, because of her many marriages, But I found it very interesting in one commentary this past week. It said, female promiscuity in that day was punished with stoning. Not with divorce. So it's far more likely that this woman has been widowed or abandoned by five husbands in a row. Think about that. And then number six comes along and doesn't even value her enough to marry her. That's how desperate and vulnerable she is. And in her patriarchal culture, her survival now depends on that guy. Lord have mercy. And in their conversation, Jesus gives us a clinic in the love and the creativity and the courage that are needed when we engage across racial and ethnic lines. It's not easy. Notice the power dynamics in his encounter with this woman. He meets her on her turf. Not his. He doesn't bring along a crowd, a support group. But he speaks to her alone. His first words to her are vulnerable. Give me a drink. Focusing on his need for her help. The well is deep and he has no bucket. Finally, He treats her like the beloved child of God that she really is. And engages her in this deep and reflective theological conversation. The longest conversation, by the way, that anyone has with Jesus or Jesus has with anyone in all four Gospels. Isn't that interesting? Now, I don't know if it's just me, but I I feel like this conversation has its element of humor in it, sounding a bit like that old Abbott and Costello routine of who's on first, what's on second, and I don't know is on third. I mean, the woman keeps on talking about well water, Jesus keeps on talking about living water, and back and forth, well water, living water, well water, living water, they go. And then finally in verse 15, the woman mashes them up together. Did you notice that? 
Sir, she says, give me your living water so that I don't have to keep coming to draw water from this well anymore. Even though if he does, she'll still need to keep drawing that water. But don't miss for a moment what is most central here. Even though Jesus knows everything about this tragic woman's life, it's to her that he offers living water. It's to her and John that he first reveals his full messianic identity. I know the Messiah is coming, she tells him, to which he responds, I'm the guy. I'm the one. So friends, if I may be so bold to say, the whole gospel is contained in this one story. We have it all. Reconciliation. Restored communion with God and one another. Walls of racial hostility tumbling down. It's all here. And come back next Sunday and Pastor Samantha is going to finish the story with us. So let me confess that I've been feeling pretty anxious about our church having a series focusing on racism, a series with no less than seven Sundays. Anybody else feel that way? And especially after the last two weeks of Supreme Court hearings that we have all just been through. So if you came to church this morning feeling a little worn out, sighing about what the Worship Commission chose to focus on, you're in good company. You're in good company. But sometimes, sometimes as the followers of Jesus, we have to go places. And have to face realities that others are happy to detour around. So this morning, let me just share a little bit about my own story with racism. And then close with the good news that Jesus shares with us. So living out in Chicago's lily-white suburbs for 13 years, let me tell you, it was so easy to preach against the evils of racism. I love to do that. But never to really grapple with them in my own soul. In fact, and I'm not proud of this, Is there a better definition of white privilege than my own story of living for 13 years and never really having to face the suffering of my black and brown neighbors just a few miles away? White privilege, it's been said, is the power to choose where we place our bodies or where we don't. 
the privilege to choose where we put our bodies and where we don't. But then, after arriving in Lancaster five years ago, Danette and I quickly learned that nothing brings out our unexplored values and unconscious bias more than buying a house. Amen? Amen? I was stunned. But what I saw in my own soul, as we started asking questions like, where do we want to live in this city? Who do we want our neighbors to be? And what school district are we going to be a part of? And when I told Danette that I didn't like a house because it was in a sketchy neighborhood, sketchy neighborhood, sketchy neighborhood, there's an app for that, sketchysomething.com. I started wondering if what I was really just saying was that I didn't want to live or have black and brown neighbors. And I have to tell you that I found all of this doubly troubling because I had grown up in a family believing that I was immune to racism because I have a sister who is African American. I just thought that I'd been dealt a get-out-of-racism-free card and was magically exempt from a lifetime of racist conditioning. Our month-long struggle for a home ended up being a time of intense spiritual struggle. And then after moving over four blocks here from the church, I then felt overwhelmed often by a deep and existential fear as I heard and saw things that I'd never heard and seen before, at least in the Chicago suburbs. And I turned to God and drew from the well of prayer like never before. And thanks be to God, God has been slowly casting out my fear. I see those things, I hear those things now, and they're normal. (laughs) And has been replacing them with a deep love for our neighbors and for this city. And through new friends of color, I'm slowly beginning to see reality through their eyes a society that systematically devalues them and overvalues everyone else who's white. I'm trying to learn how to listen to those below who are closest closest to the pain. My experience here in Lancaster 
conversations at our community meals, many visits to the prison where you look around and the inmates are disproportionately black and brown, walks around our city. All these things have helped me to tune in to the reality that racism exists at the personal level in my own heart, but is also baked into the systems and structures of our nation. It continues to defend white superiority, allowing, for example, just this June, a white policeman in our city to taser a seated black man on South Prince Street and for him not to be fired or even disciplined. 2018, in our city. Think about it. Our world's, grac- our world's glorious racial diversity, created by God, for praise and delight has been debased into a demonic tool of division, hostility, and fear. In America today, I believe that racism has become a principality and power. That even after abolition of slavery, even after the civil rights movement, continues to thrive and to mutate with a life of its own. And so in our worship series, we're going to be seeing that it's not enough for those of us who are white just to no longer use the N-word, just to no longer be part of KKK. Systemic racism doesn't even need racists. Did you think about that? It just rolls on on its own, baked in to how we police, how we fund our schools, how we run our courts, and how we allow or hinder people's voting. And this morning, as we face these hard realities, I want to make clear that this doesn't have anything to do with political correctness. We're doing this work because we thirst for the justice of God. Where people of color receive what they need to flourish and thrive. And we do this preparation, dear friends, for the future, for our future life with God. Let me say that again. We do this preparation, or this work as preparation for our future life with God, where there will be no race or group that is privileged over any other. As we enter into this series, let me 
invite us to uh, avoid a few sand traps. I'm not a golfer, but to avoid a few sand traps. One of the sand traps is, I've already got this, like you know who. Another sand trap is, I've already covered this, as if racism is something we learn about once and then we're done with it. I think another sand trap is, is just feeling plain overwhelmed by the scale of what we face. And so our worship team is inviting each of you, and instead of just taking it all on, later today we're going to be sharing with you a list of resources, movies, books, novels. Just choose one of them. One of them. And take a little step in doing your own inner work. So let me close with the good news. We always have to close with the good news. God never asks us to do anything that God does not provide us with the grace and strength and energy to fulfill. Amen? Let me say that again. God never asks us to do anything that God doesn't provide us with the resources to do. Living water flows endlessly from God's artesian well gushing up to our eternal life. So friends... Let us not neglect to draw from God's well. There is a well. Let's say that. There is a well. And for each of us, our way of drawing from this well will be somewhat different. Some of us, it will be going to the Word, centering prayer, embodied meditation, contemplation in the woods, whatever it is. Just remember, there's absolutely no way to be a faithful follower of Jesus in this world without regularly drawing from the well. If you forget everything, remember that. Because as our dear Jesus told our dear Samaritan sister, those who drink of this living water will never be thirsty again. Amen.